from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. Be sure to sign up for the mailing list by clicking the link in the description. On today's show, we have a poet that accesses the beauty of existence by highlighting the ethereal nature of its darkness. His poetry has a message, but gives you the latitude to make it your own. He's joining me today to talk about his poetry collection entitled Dislocated, as well as his upcoming work. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Dylan Webster. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for joining me on this 30th day of April 2023. I found your profile on Bookstagram while sifting through the recommendations that the accounts I follow consistently post. That's one thing about Bookstagrammers. They promote other people's work as much, if not more, than their own work. Mm. And there are a lot of poets I've come across, but none with what I would call a dark aesthetic. You, however, have managed to turn pain into beauty and to lessen the blow of the mixed realities of life with the opiate of poetry. So I'm happy to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you very much. Definitely happy to be on. Very excited. Absolutely. So the name of your poetry collection is Dislocated. And for context and perspective, as I asked some questions about certain poems in this collection that really stood out for me, if it's not too personal, can you talk about your spiritual and or religious beliefs? Yeah, I can definitely talk about the history of them. I think they're always evolving. I was definitely raised in like more of an evangelical kind of Christian sort of upbringing. And then that started to evolve. And then I kind of had like a big falling away from that. So then I started kind of diving more into like trying to read other spiritual texts, like the Upanishads, some of those Hindu scriptures, and then Buddhist scriptures. And I got super into people like Carl Jung and other kind of more visionary people. And then on the poetic side, definitely into um, William Blake and W.B. Yeats and the like. 
So I would say I'm definitely attracted to spirituality and the whole aesthetic that kind of goes with that. I love any kind of interaction with it, the visionary experience. I think that's why I'm drawn to like the prophetic books in the Bible. And then, like I said, the Upanishads are very similar, kind of like wisdom mixed with prophetic vision. So a lot of that, obviously, there's a ton of history. We could probably just go on forever on all of the different little spots along the timeline that I stopped at. But that's kind of been my development. A lot of time reading Neoplatonism, mm. I, I kind of stopped there and um, stayed there and kind of read a lot of those kind of Neoplatonists and especially with their ecstatic visions mm-hmm. while also maintaining a very kind of naturalist approach. At the same time, I find that juxtaposition very interesting. So I would say my own beliefs are definitely evolving. I do think that there's a spirituality that underlies everything and that we have souls, you know, that there's natural life, all that kind of stuff. There's kind of that deeper connection throughout everything. Mm. You mentioned the Upanishads. Have you studied Hinduism at all? Uh, I hesitate to say yes. I'm very interested in it. Uh-huh. I've tried to read quite a bit. Like I said, I read the I read the Upanishads. I got this really cool, huge book of the Rig Veda, mm-hmm. and so I've read I've read some of them, although I haven't read that whole thing. So I'm really interested in it, and some of the Bhagavad Gita as well, but I haven't finished that yet. So. Yeah, so a lot of kind of approaching it, kind of dipping my toes in, you know, but I would hesitate to say that I've studied it. I think it would necessitate a little bit more time for me to say that, but I respect it quite a bit. What attracts me to anything really is if I can sense that there's like a lot of time behind it, something that's timeless, something that's been there forever. And I feel like I think that's kind of the connection between everything I've said and especially like the Carl Jung aspect into all of that Mm. is um, I love Jung. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's actually what led me to, you know, reading the Upanishads and some of the Hindu scriptures. But anything that just seems like there's certain things where you can get a sense of truth from it that predates whatever the trappings around it are. Mm-hmm. And so when I find stuff like that, I'm immediately hooked. Mm-hmm. Whether it's poetry or sacred texts, you know, I've tried to spend a lot of time reading all this, all the sacred texts that I can get my hands on. Like I said, Buddhist. Um, I did read I've almost completed reading the an English translation of the Quran. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have read through the Bible multiple times. But there's things in all of them that I feel like kind of touch on these deeper human or divine kind of, like I said, truths or, or experiences. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like touching an electric fence. You kind of know it when you feel that shock, when you feel that sensation. Okay. Well, when it comes to your poetry, would you say that your poems have a narrative that's able to be sussed out? Like, yeah, that's what I meant when I was writing this, or are they left up to partial or complete interpretation by the reader? I guess there's two answers to that. I know what I want. I want to hint at a meaning that's probably close to what I felt at the time. But I don't want to pin it down to a certain time. You know what I mean? I want Mm -hmm. to be able to come back to it myself later and also still relate to that. And then I want someone, you know, I would love for other people to be able to read that and get their own kind of take from it. Mm -hmm. There are some poems in there that definitely have a specific meaning. And I'm sure that anyone who knows me would know exactly what I'm referring to. But for the most part, I guess I would describe it as I like to talk about dispositions and atmospheres. Mm -hmm. So that's what I love. And I think that's something that anyone can step into 
and think either I felt that or I know someone who feels that. And so therefore I relate to it. And um, I know that's what I love and appreciate in poetry. Mm. It's what I love and appreciate in, you know, lyrics to music that I enjoy. So I tend to do that. I hope that I've done that. But, you know, I guess it depends on uh, what the readers think. Gotcha. Well, your poem, Smelling Salts, really piqued my interest. Smelling salts are synonymous with waking someone up from an unconscious state. And you speak about war and that, quote, our war is in correspondence and the mirroring of progress. What are your thoughts on the general population's perception of reality? Yeah, so this kind of does tie perfectly into your previous question. This one's a little more clear in the sense that that is obviously what I'm talking about is is reality. And I definitely think that there's kind of uh, just a, a general kind of unawareness, you know, to living life. I hesitate to call it like materialism just because of all the connotations that go along with someone speaking against materialism. But mm-hmm. I would say there is kind of a sense of just this, just live in the moment, you know, ephemeral type of ephemeral in the negative sense to me, which is that if it's ephemeral, just enjoy the moment now and don't think about anything else. And while I do think there's a little bit of truth to that and something that should be taken away, I think we've leaned way too far into it. Um, yeah. I'm really influenced by the work of Guy Debord and Jean Baudrillard, who are two French philosophers or sociologists. I don't know. If you look them up, you'll see both those terms tossed around. But Guy Debord has a book called The Society of the Spectacle, and Jean Baudrillard has a book called Simulacra and Simulation, mm-hmm. which some people may know as being a, a direct influence on the matrix. Um, <laughs> it's just very easy to get lost into the vanity fair, to use the old term. You get so lost into it. We all do. And so I think that's exactly what I was talking about with this. I was writing about war before everything happened with Russia and Ukraine and all that. Mm-hmm. But I was talking about wars, just these perpetual wars that just never end and, no, and don't achieve anything. You know, It's a spectacle, like I was talking about. Well, your poem, Heartbeat Clocks, made me think a lot about what time actually is, the fourth dimension, the passing of existence relative to another mass, in our case, often used as a measurement of decay. What are your thoughts on time's effects on consciousness and perceptions such as maturity from experience and whether or not time is linear or more like the Egyptians thought, cyclical? I mean, my first intuitive response is to automatically agree with the Egyptians. <laughs> um, I, they built I think, the goddamn pyramids. They must know what they're doing. <laughs> right. Exactly. We can't even, can't come close to that. I mean, seriously though, I do think our idea of time that seems so natural to us, especially, especially as Westerners is even in the Western world, still relatively recent. And so it's relatively recent in the grand scale of things. And to think of time as, cyclical is much more ancient i think you know not just with the Mm -hmm. not just with the egyptians but with everything that we know about humanity so i really think that time is cyclical one of the fascinating things to me is the recurrence of of similar themes and even just just straight up similar stories in all of mythology Mm -hmm. that's obviously been widely documented by a lot of people much smarter than myself so i'm not going to go into that but the idea of cyclical time is something that plays into a lot of different mythologies what you were talking about with like memory especially i find it really fascinating 
I was just reading about this actually, that our memory of an event is, you could phrase it, more real than when we were in that moment experiencing the event. And so that's part of what I was trying to capture with this poem as well, is that like we think of time one way with, you know, like I was talking about, you know, hands gliding on the clock and, you know, clocking in and out, like playing with the idea of the clock and everything. But the clock is recent. That's not how anyone has ever measured time before. And yet it's just what we go to. So I think time is just fascinating. Consciousness is fascinating. And the two of them intertwining are just, uh, you could go off forever about it. You know, how do people have memories of the future? How do people like experience anything really? It's really fascinating. And so that's the thought behind it. And um, the time that's going on right now in this moment that we have is so precious. That's what I was touching on before. The truth to that statement of like, now is the only like certain thing. That is true. So it should not be just expelled mindlessly. Mm -hmm. So in your poem, Blasphemy, you talk about what I would obviously assume is Jesus because he was considered a blasphemer by the Sanhedrin. And you speak of the whore at his side, which I would think is Mary Magdalene, as well as making reference to the apostle Peter. So who do you think is or should be the arbiter of morality, especially when it comes to different cultures and religions, because the story of Jesus is a good example of how one person's morality is another person's blasphemy. Yeah, I don't know. I think <laughs> that's exactly what I was trying to touch on in the in the poem. That's exactly the thing that is so I basically had gone back to reading the Bible again after getting out of that kind of church environment that I was describing before. Mm-hmm you know, having been raised in it and definitely being able to give real responses, but then kind of getting out of that, reading around a little bit. And then one of my friends was kind of interested in the, in the gospels. And he was actually asking about all of the different gospels, not just the canonical ones. And so while we were reading through those, it was obviously a different set of, you know, a different set of glasses I have on when I'm reading through it again. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what stuck out to me the most was that, I mean, if you read the old Testament, a lot of the stuff that Jesus is doing and saying in the New Testament really does, by the Old Testament's definition, kind of set him apart as a blasphemer. So, mm. you know, a lot of those morals are morals that you can find all throughout. And Jesus isn't the only one that said that. So I think your question about who's the arbiter is exactly what I was trying to pin down on this. You know, my favorite, I facetiously refer to her as a whore because I don't think she was. Mm. And, um, find it interesting that that's the image of Mary Magdalene that's stuck mm -hmm. throughout history, unfortunately. And so that's exactly, you know, this kind of mixing of things and changing of the perception. You know, a lot of people have, and myself included, a lot of us have different opinions and views of certain things without having actually interacted with them ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then when you do, you realize like, oh, this is really different, you know, like the first time I read through the Quran, for example, or even the first time I read through anything that had to do with um, Greek philosophy. Mm. You know, growing up, Greek philosophy was like, you just stay away from Greek philosophy. It's not good. Um, <laughs> and then you read through it and I'm like, I mean, Socrates is saying a lot of stuff that Jesus said too. So this is pretty mm. interesting. Yeah. You know, so um, yeah. Who is the arbiter? I don't know. 
I mean, when you start asking yourself questions like that, do you ever find yourself kind of floating into nihilism? And when I say nihilism, I don't mean like passive nihilism, like we don't believe in Nazing Lebowski, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm talking about like, you know, specific types like moral nihilism, like not saying that, that there is no morality and you should be able to do whatever you want, but it's like, is there really a fixed point to anchor to? You know, like when you think about it, that old expression, uh, might is right. It's like, all right, who has the right? Well, who has the might? <laughs> like, yeah. and epistemological nihilism, like, it's just like religion. You take religion on faith and then say, well, I follow, I follow science. Well, unless you're doing your own experiments, you know, in the lab and recreating these things, you're kind of taking the scientist's word on faith. So I don't know. Yeah, I I find myself sliding into nihilism sometimes. Yeah, I would say I find myself, I mean, that's, it's a huge reason why I write poetry to begin with. Mm -hmm. You know, you circle around those questions and you think about them and there really is no answer. You know, you can find an answer to back up a message that you want to give to other people. Mm -hmm. But I think if someone's really honest with themselves, a lot of times, none of the answers really satisfy everything. You know, there's always room to be like, like I know for me personally, when I first interacted with neoplatonism, I just had this moment where I was like, I finally found it. This is it. This is perfect. This Mm -hmm. fits everything. Boom. And then you start thinking about it more and more though. And then you're like, well, isn't this just going to be an infinite in infinite regress though Uh of like you know all of these different levels of being into complete obscurity and maybe it is yeah i don't know i don't know if i could say nihilism and i think that's because i'm probably so afraid of nihilism Mm. that i won't let myself get there but i definitely find myself looking into you know what is it nietzsche's chasm Mm. or his abyss i'm always i'm always looking into that and being like oh my god there it is that's you know that's frightening we need to find something you got to find something. Obviously, if you read through the book, you can definitely tell that, you know, a lot of existentialist philosophy mm-hmm. is really influential. And the reason is, you know, people make fun of the existentialists sometimes. But I think the reason why they're so enduring and so strong in today's world, especially, is because it's really kind of recognizing what you talked about saying like, well, you're going to find a plot hole here, you're going to find a plot hole there, you're going to find this, everything has to be taken on faith at some point. I think what everyone is drawn to is the idea that look, at a certain point, you're just going to have to inject meaning somewhere. Mm -hmm. You need to find meaning and create meaning. You're going to have to. Otherwise, there's nothing left. Mm -hmm. And that precipice is pretty steep. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the reason why the existentialists are so, for a lot of us today, Mm -hmm. are so key. You know, whether or not we know that that's where we're getting a lot of our ideas. Mm -hmm. I think some of that's been a little bit lost already, which is scary, considering it's only been like 150 years. But I think that's why they're still so relevant. And that's what I'm struggling with. You know, I think anyone who doesn't have answers is the one that is the most honest. Are you a fan of uh, Camus at all? Absurdism? I really am. Yeah. I don't know about, obviously, some of his conclusions, you know, just like with everybody. Mm -hmm. It's like there's things you resonate with so deeply and then their way of handling that, their way of of taking that and then stepping forward. You know, you may not always agree with that, but I think he definitely touched a nerve. He saw something. Yeah. And it's been a huge influence on me ever since I read The Myth of Sisyphus. Yeah. Just trying to put into perspective what it looks like to embrace the absurdity of life. 
<laughs> yeah, and even on these new poems that I've been working on, I've gotten together into a little chat book. It may turn into a second full collection, but right now it's a chat book. And um, I've just been diving more into that, the idea of the absurd, the idea of the modern, this life that we live in. Mm-hmm. So that's been carrying over and getting even like, you know, how do you embrace it? I mean, you have to embrace it, really, if mm-hmm. you think about it. Especially in our day, we can't avoid it. Mm. It's right there in your face. <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel like it used to be everyone was afraid that if you explore deep enough, you'll find the absurd. Mm. Now, the absurd has stepped right into our cities. It's knocking on our doors. Yeah. It's right there, mm. you know. Yes, sir. Well, in your poem, The Work of Our Hands, it was very interesting, the thought process, and with your talk of, quote, children of men procreating with metal and veins of wire coursing with new blood, unquote. It made me think of all this technology that we're developing that's outsourcing what it means to be human. And, you know, I've been asking a lot of my guests about what they think about chat GPT and the implications for writing. And we're obviously making massive leaps in the area of robotics and self-driving cars. And uh, according to what I've read, and who knows if it's true or not, the birth rates are also down. So in all seriousness, I mean, you touched on it earlier. Do you think we could literally create a matrix-like scenario? (laughs) Can you expand on that? (laughs) Yeah, I think. The funny thing about the Matrix is that in that story, they create the machines who then turn around and enslave them. Mm-hmm. And in our story, we're just putting ourselves in the pods. There is no enslavement going on. We're, yeah. we're walking into it, you know? Mm-hmm. I definitely think, you know, the Matrix obviously wasn't the first to talk about it. Aldous Huxley foresaw a lot of that coming in Brave different New ways. World. Yeah, in Brave New World, it's fascinating how much of that was true. Mm-hmm. Um, even in his response to George Orwell's 1984, when he gives his reasoning as to why he doesn't think a 1984 scenario is all that likely and why his scenario was more likely, mm-hmm. all of his reasons, I think, are completely true. You know, What's crazy to me is that all these things we're going to refer to right now, if anyone listens to this, and not that they would listen to me, but if they were <laughs> to listen to me in 10 years, all these things are going to be outdated. There's going to be something else that we're talking about that we're worried about. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's something again, talking about those Olympians versus Titans. It's not the only one. There's all kinds of other ones, but the idea of being supplanted, you know, is something that we've feared for who knows how long. It's another recurrent theme of you create the thing that displaces you, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, to answer your question, I do absolutely believe that we could create a scenario like that a scenario where if i described it in one way i could describe exactly the way that our world is right now and it already would sound like a matrix like scenario Mm -hmm. with everyone being distracted Mm -hmm. by screens personas not having any real knowledge of any events that are actually going on but reacting with full passion Mm -hmm. when you see something going on so you know there you're already talking about the idea when i referenced john baudrillard's book his idea of like everything detaching from the original. So we're reacting to things we don't understand. We're concerned about things that we're not actually participating in. That's all a detachment from reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the technology can really, you know, I, I was talking about outsourcing what it means to be human. The technology can atrophy 
what it means to be human. Like what we're doing, I guess, is a little bit more realistic because we're having a conversation. But if we were just interacting on name your social media where we're not really having a conversation, we're sending messages or liking each other's posts and stuff like that. A lot of people prefer to interact that way than face-to-face over video, definitely face-to-face in person. So a lot of people's ability to socialize has atrophied. And with ChatGPT, I mean, it's in its beta stages, but its beta stages are, it's like we're feeding it the information. It's learning how to be more human based on how we interact with it. So if it's... Yeah, here's what scares me is that it learns how to be more human by our interaction with it. Uh-huh. But then the next generation that we have is going to learn how to be more human by their reaction with it. So now you have this loop that gets created. Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel like that's exactly how the atrophy gets. Not just It's not just atrophy at that point. Uh-huh. Now it's, it's accelerated. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, your poem monstrosity and its talk of earth and quote its children trampling her enraptured by illusions of luxury and ease really highlights the way that completely unchecked quote unquote progress consumes the earth like a cancer so do you think the arts and humanities are the key to helping people to be not so consumed with materialism and consumerism or do you think that it can and possibly is contributing to it that's a fascinating way to phrase that question. Are we are we uh, contributing to it right now? <laughs> Is this podcast consumer materialism? I mean, I guess if I wanted a quick witticism, I could just say, well, we're not dumping oil into the oceans right now so that we can make a lot of money. So no. Mm-hmm. Um, but I... <laughs> I definitely... We're burning coal, I definitely though. see your point. <laughs> that is true. Um, I think the arts are really important because they... I was just talking to another poet about this recently, actually, that there's a really great kind of thought experiment to have about religion and the arts have a really close history, Mm. often overlapping and intertwining. The Renaissance. And there's kind of a question about, yeah, the Renaissance is a great one. Um, You know, ancient Greek religious festivals, you could argue, are arts festivals. So the interaction between those, the interlinking history of them, leads you to a question of what came first. Like, were we being artistic first and then these religious festivals came out of it were we being religious first and then art came out in order to magnify extol and describe those things i'm not sure my point in saying that is that there's something about art and not just the written but all kinds of art there's something about art that speaks to your soul Mm. or whatever you want to call that whatever that kind of essence of what makes us human there's something about that when we lose it you can easily see that regress into just decor. Mm. You just have something that's on the wall and you look at it and you kind of get a, you might get a momentary kind of artistic high from it and then it's gone. But real art will engage you and that still can. You can still hear a beautiful song that brings you to tears and makes you think of something or enrages you because it's really highlighting something true, you know, and you can find that anywhere. So I do think that, especially in our day, art is extremely important. What I'm afraid of is that exactly what I said a second ago about the slip into just decor. But I absolutely have faith that this art that's lasted for probably as long as humanity has been around 
will continue to last and it can't be replicated. I don't think real art can be replicated. That's the only thing that gives me hope against what we just talked about with like technology kind of, you know, outpacing us. Mm -hmm. It absolutely can in a lot of ways, but no matter how great you get at simulating something, a simulation is still a simulation. Mm -hmm. So real art is also still real art. That's kind of the other side to that. Yeah. Like quote unquote AI art. I mean, basically it's not really art. It's plagiarism. It's like using sources created by humans off the internet. You know, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. like, it's, it's not creating it itself. It's, it's like an algorithm that's blending pieces that it's drawing right from uh, different sources. So I've read papers that have been written by chat GPT. And of course, I don't know the more we feed chat GPT, I don't know what it's going to be <laughs> like, but what it's like now, you know, it's, pretty milk toast pretty uh you know you can tell it was not written by a human or if it was the human's half dead you know just the most boring person on the face of the planet yeah it just doesn't have any heart in it you know right so right yeah my fear isn't with my fear isn't with the ai or the chat gbt itself it's with what i was talking about that second aspect of like if we don't maintain the difference and then that's what teaches the next generation, then yeah. that's when you kind of have that regression that starts to happen. Mm -hmm. But I still don't think, I still don't think it would be lost forever. I think there's times where, you know, I think there's times where things have been darkened, things have been lost, then we get them back, we rediscover it, authenticity is sought after all the time. So I think in the end, it'll probably be okay. I guess that's the optimist part of me that comes out. Or maybe it's just proof but that again, time is cyclical. <laughs> exactly yeah i'm just hoping that that we'll have another maybe a big reset and we'll we'll do it all again yeah like the pendulum <laughs> will just come back gangbusters <laughs> yeah exactly well in your poem beholder you talk about the expression that beauty is in the eye of the beholder meaning that beauty is subjective your final contention seems to be that beauty is on the inside which i would agree has to be present but would you not agree that objective beauty does exist and that it's based on symmetry? And even though the lack of symmetry is often very beautiful, its beauty is ultimately derived from its contrast with symmetry? Yeah, I've been thinking about that question quite a bit. You know, I, I sometimes wonder if trying to pin it down, is it this or is it that, is maybe where the problem is. The wrong maybe question. Beauty is, <laughs> yeah, maybe beauty itself is nuanced. I do think that there is truth to what you just said about there being kind of a lot of times the beauty is in a contrast, right? The contrast of something objective versus the subjective. And then that stark contrast creates this energy that you just can't, mm -hmm. you look for that, you know, kind of like how you get such a reaction from playing a competitive sport, getting really into it, and then you win. Mm -hmm. And that's a euphoric feeling. But it's also, I mean, you could also argue that you kind of get the same feeling in reverse when you have a crushing defeat. And that energy there is what's beautiful. So I do think that beauty is definitely not just based on, is it aesthetically pleasing when I look at it? Mm -hmm. There's something deeper, obviously, to beauty than that. And that's kind of the point of the poem is to talk about that. There's more to that. And that's exactly what philosophers have been talking about for thousands of years, mm -hmm. is that there's, there's something here that's true and real and deep. And that's what we can't get enough of. But what is it? We can't describe that. Mm -hmm. So whatever it is, is you know, maybe Beholder was the wrong title. It's, <laughs> it's maybe I should have titled it Beyond the Beholder. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the reason I, you know, bring up symmetry and, you know, like in the Renaissance with Leonardo, the Vitruvian man, the golden fire ratio, his, for lack of a better word, his equation for beauty based on symmetry. Also, they found that asymmetry can cause feelings of discomfort, like the trapezoid. Like, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but really classic horror movies like um, Rosemary's Baby and what's the one about the Antichrist, Damien, The Omen. The hotel or the apartment building they live in in Rosemary's Baby and the house in The Omen have mansard roofs. And there's oh, there's something very off-putting about a mansard roof. I wonder if that's connected at all to the idea of the uncanny, you know, the uncanny valley, mm-hmm. and how like something something is like close to reality, but obviously still not quite it. And so that dissonance is so unnerving and unsettling. It's almost I'm really fascinated by that idea of same thing with like liminal spaces mm-hmm. and um, and why that's been a huge thing on the internet lately, the idea of liminal spaces. Like there's something about that kind of, again, it's almost like internal contrast. Mm-hmm. Like it's like your mind is contrasting what it knows it should look like and with what it's seeing, or I guess what I should say is what it thinks it should look like mm-hmm. and what it's seeing. And that kind of dissonance, again, I, I just feel like that causes some sort of energy. That's what we can't get enough of. I'm definitely, you know, always been attracted to horror horror movies, horror novels, <laughs> anything with horror. There's something about that unnerving feeling, mm-hmm. the anxiety, the that kind of impending doom. I wrote a short story, actually, that was published in the Dilly Dunn Review. And I was really proud because somebody responded to it and messaged me and said that they felt unnerved the entire time they were reading it because <laughs> it was all about this idea of like, awaiting this presence to come home Mm -hmm. and this horrible scenario that was there. I won't get into it, but the point is I was really happy because that sensation of that kind of impending doom that like waiting for that to happen. That's what I look for in those movies. And I think certain people are attracted to movies like that because you don't get that same kind of reaction from other movies. Mm -hmm. You know, you might get the excitement of an action movie, maybe the deep emotional drama of a well done literary fiction but for film whatever we could call that but with horror it's that that same kind of intense just you know waiting for it whether it's in a slasher and you're you can't wait to see jason get this guy Mm -hmm. or if it's you know the fear of the unknown you know kind of more like in you know the shining for a perfect example yeah i mean the shining is a perfect example for almost everything we just said Mm -hmm. it's got liminal spaces the whole hotel is liminal Mm -hmm. and you know you've got this impending unknown kind of force that's playing on jack and you can't tell if it's the spirit of grady is it the hotel itself is it jack's own subconscious mm-hmm. you know you have no idea what's going on yeah. so yeah i i definitely find it fascinating i think that kind of cognitive dissonance is what people get attracted to yeah i know it's what i get attracted to i can't get enough of it yeah yeah i read a book called um nightmare fuel the science of horror film mm. it's by nina Nesseth. she's a uh, research scientist in canada and she gets you know she, she's a scientist so of course she's a materialist so you're not gonna find anything like 
spiritual, so to speak, but uh, mm-hmm. she go she goes into the brain's reaction to the jump scare, the activation of the limbic system, and oh, man. Um, the concrete operational stage of age one to seven, where if you get you know quote unquote traumatized by a scary movie, you're more than likely to retain the trauma from something that's made well you know some people would say oh no demons aren't make-believe but we'll say something that's not in the material world (laughs) you know right uh yeah as opposed to like a serial killer or something like that yeah it's a real interesting book that's fascinating yeah that's really fascinating yeah i i mean demons themselves that's another interesting aspect of this is something that i find fascinating you'll find different descriptions of a god or gods Mm-hmm. in all the different kind of religions. I feel like that's actually what varies the most is the description of gods. But how fascinating is it that what's usually very common in almost any system are spiritual beings like demons or angels? Yeah. Well, so the final stanza of your poem, Survey, quote, let there be hope, but don't trample truth beneath tenacious truisms, unquote, is a wise admonition to not succumb to nihilism from being subject to the grim reality of the world we live in, but to be mindful of it. At least that's the way I interpreted it. So what do you think is the best way to balance that for your own emotional health and the health of others around you? I mean, you can't walk around with your head in the clouds but i mean if if you stay focused on it too much you're just gonna be miserable yeah i think for me at least my recent recourse has just been anytime something becomes didactic i question Mm -hmm. if it's hopeful i think there's value to that but as soon as it becomes like i said didactic i immediately question it and usually tend to try to stay away from that because in my experience as soon as someone starts speaking to you in absolutes, you're automatically creating dichotomies as you're talking mm-hmm. and putting people onto the other side. And so it's like, in my opinion, you kind of create a lot of the negativity that happens just by doing that. Mm-hmm. So although it might help you, it's not helping a lot of the people around you. And it's kind of self-defeating at that point. So that's kind of what I mean by, by let there be hope. I think hope is useful, mm-hmm. whether or not it's realistic. That's kind of goes back to the whole, like, you know, in the face of the absurd, it's like, I do believe there comes a point where you kind of have to act on hope, or you could say on faith, whether or not it might be realistic to believe that there's something hopeful, just in order to keep going, like you said, to stay away from from nihilism, but not at the expense of putting everyone else around you down. Yeah. Well, (laughs) this next one, I found myself getting a little lost trying to wrap my head around your poem. What I meant seems to be a sort of meta commentary on people's interpretation of your poems. And the fact is not lost on me that I'm literally talking about my interpretation of your poem that I'm interpreting as being about my interpretation of your poem. (laughs) So, (laughs) How do you feel when you hear people's interpretation of your poems? Do you feel that as the poem says that sometimes they do in fact quote, inhale imaginative personas of their own and proceed to dance on stage in ways you did not direct? Um, yeah, well, I mean, firstly, whenever anyone comes to me and talks about reading my poetry, I'm just so, you know, receptive and 
humbled and excited about the fact that someone else is is reading this thing that I created. Mm -hmm. So approaching it from that perspective, I feel like I'm kind of contributing to the idea of them becoming their own thing because I don't want to then say, yeah, so here's exactly what I meant by that. Mm -hmm. And then tell them exactly what I meant. Because if that were the case, I probably wouldn't be writing poetry. Mm -hmm. I would be writing something a little bit more, you know, here I'm going to sit down and tell you exactly what I'm talking about. I'd write an essay or I'd write fiction or something and very clearly set up a narrative and a, and a message. And not that you can't still do that within those things. I respect people who can pull that off. But I love poetry for that very reason that it's such a double-edged sword for everything. I know that there are poems by living poets that I just absolutely adore. And I wouldn't want to know exactly what they meant mm -hmm. behind it. I love what I took from it, mm -hmm. you know? And so if I can at all have that with someone who reads, you know, one of my pieces, then I'm happy to watch them become their, their own interpretation. I think it's wonderful. And I host a, an open mic monthly here in Phoenix, Arizona. And it is really cool when I read a piece and somebody comes afterwards and tells me, here's what that meant to me. You know, mm -hmm. I think, I think it's one of the coolest things in the world to hear that. So I usually shy away from telling someone if they say, Oh, it's what I think that poem means. I shy away from telling them like, yes or no, unless it's completely wrong, but I haven't, I haven't experienced that yet. Okay. Well, it seems like in the following poem, architecture of intentions that you're saying that your words are the framework and the reader's interpretation is the facade, like the brick and the woodwork that makes it outwardly beautiful. So would you say the more ambiguous and left to interpretation something is, the more beautiful and unique it can be made by the reader? Or would you say that there's definitely a line where you can lose the connection with the reader? And can you kind of expand on that? I definitely think there is a point at which you can lose the, you can lose the reader. I, I'm sure all of us have read a piece and come away from it, whether it's poetry or not, and just feel like you read word soup and have no idea <laughs> what was going on. So my personal opinion is if you can't take anything away from it or put anything into it, I'm not entirely sure why the piece is there or what you get from it. That's not to say there's nothing. Maybe it's just above me. But for me, I look in art for something that I can either take from it or put inside of it. Mm hmm and so that's kind of why, I mean, that goes along with my very phrasing, calling it like the architecture of intentions. I view that what I do, I, I always have it in my mind of like, I'm building some sort of space and I either want to go in there. And so I want the reader to see me enter a space or I'm trying to create a space for a reader to enter into. And that's always kind of how I view it. So I do think that the connection between writer and reader is really important. The writers who I respect the most have been able to do that for me. They've been able to create a space and I go in there and now it's mine. Mm. You know, I think that's beautiful. And that's definitely what I aim for. You know, again, I'm not the one that can say whether or not I did that, but it's definitely what I aim for. Mm. I feel like a lot of uh, alternative metal, like gent metal bands, write lyrics that are just intentional word soup. I mean, Put to a, a really badass guitar riff, you know, they're amazing. Yeah. Like the Deftones comes to mind. I don't know if you ever listen to the Deftones or mm -hmm. Periphery, like just <laughs> the stuff they say sounds really cool, especially when it's put to music. But yeah. It just doesn't make any goddamn sense. And I'm pretty sure yeah. I've heard the lead singer say, yeah, I just, uh, it's more about a feeling than, you know, <laughs> making any sort of coherent <laughs> statement. So, 
I guess I could see that either way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and again, I mean, it kind of works a little bit better with music because you do have that extra aspect of art that you're engaging with, Mm -hmm. you know, with like you're building a whole soundscape. So now that itself is affecting a person. I love a lot of electronic music that comes out of Germany. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when I hear a song at first, before I can go and like look up an English translation of the lyrics, I still already get a feeling from that song. I have an emotion associated with the sound and all of that. So I think it's really great when you have that kind of extra aspect. For me with poetry and with the written word, I definitely think you kind of have to work a little bit more on creating something that can be interacted with. And for me, ambiguity is wonderful if it's done well enough because mystery always brings you back. Yeah. You know, it's not satisfied. There's something that's still left. For me, that's what poetry always does to me. There's always some sort of mystery in the lyricism of poetry and I can't get enough of it. And so, you know, that's what I attempt to do. Hmm. Well, I loved your poem, Braviloquent, and I actually had to look that word up. (laughs) I learned, learned a new word. Uh, it's because I'm a bit of a minimalist. I hate clutter. I envy people that can speak clearly and concisely. And I think there's elegance and simplicity. Mm-hmm. Is that one of the things that drew you to poetry? Because even though there's epic poems, I think the lion's share seem to be short bursts of beauty and yes. pain. And if so, what else drew you to poetry? It's absolutely what drew me to poetry. That's 100% true. I have always been and still am blown away when a piece that's not overwrought, not, you know, filling up many, many pages can evoke something deep Mm. in a person or confront you with something and really make you think about it. Poetry tends to do that. Great poetry does do that. And I just, you know, it's a part of that mystery. How does it do that? I don't know. Mm. I don't know how it does. Sometimes I think of it as literal magic. I mean, it's almost like you're chanting spells and it just grabs you, you know, it's beautiful. And um, so that's definitely what drew me to poetry. A love of language drew me to poetry. I really do love language, the things that it can do, the emotions it can evoke. I think language is just fascinating, Mm. even to think about what language is and how we take these just immaterial thoughts and then write them down. And now you can pick up and read what people were thinking thousands of years ago and get something from them. It may be wrong, but you got something, Mm -hmm. you know? I think that's fascinating. So that drew me to poetry. It's the same thing that draws me to short novels as well. Like any great piece of writing that can achieve something really great and yet be just pithy and pungent and just just powerful, you know? I think of like The Old Man in the Sea as a perfect example Mm -hmm. by Ernest Hemingway. That book is so short and yet it's just incredible you know, and you go back to it. It's almost mythological. It's almost like there's so much that's not being said. And so that's what you're interacting with. That's what something inside you is interacting with is all the things that aren't said. Mm -hmm. And I think poetry can do that beautifully. You know, a side note about Hemingway and the old man in the sea. I literally just interviewed a guy whose wife bought him an original Life magazine that had that story in it because it was published in Life magazine Wow! because his career was kind of on the rocks at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was published there first. And she I don't know where she got it, but it's an original Life magazine with Hemingway's face on the front with the old man in the sea in it and got it in a frame. 
That is amazing. Yeah. Wow. I'd love to see a picture of that. Mm -hmm. So your poem, De Profundis, really spoke to me because of the image of a writer, quote, touching the divinity of creativity by turning inward, which is the definition of introversion. So would you say that you're an introvert or at least given to introvert tendencies? And if so, what were you attempting to convey by referencing a poem written by Oscar Wilde, who was an extroverted man that was writing in the solitude of a prison cell? Uh, So no, I am not an introvert. I think I'm actually very extroverted. But what I find really fascinating is exactly what you just said about what Oscar Wilde was doing. He's an extroverted person. And then in solitude, has nowhere left to go. Mm -hmm. So he dives inward, you know, and I mean, you can't really capture anything in a pithy way about Oscar Wilde. He's a genius, but it's also a reference to the Psalms, which is what he was referencing. So there's kind of multiple references going on there, but the idea of the depths, there's so much to touch on in it. In the Psalm, it's I don't remember exactly the whole Latin phrase, but I know that the English translation is like, out of the depths I cried unto thee, O Lord. And so it's, you know, this idea of like being at the very lowest, looking at the very top. And you could interpret that as hopelessness. You could interpret it as actually like obstinate hope instead, like this kind of angry, like, I am calling out to you. I know that you're there and I'm all the way down here, Mm -hmm. you know? I think Oscar Wilde was touching on both of those. What I was touching on is definitely the idea of I think sometimes because I actually am very extroverted, you kind of tend not to really deal with a lot of things internally because you are always seeking outward, yeah, always talking to someone else. And so it actually leaves a lot there to be mined out. So like when you do dive in, there's quite a bit there, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. So that's kind of what I was referring to. But also I think that anytime anyone does that, extroverted or introverted, anytime anyone is able to go to the depths, they find something that's going to resonate with people. You know, John mm. Kwan Glass is a poet who has a new book out that came out just last year called Night Swim. And I think she does that in her collection. And it's absolutely stunning. And anyone who goes and reads that will see exactly what I'm trying to capture in that poem. Okay. Interesting. Well, Your poem, Anxiety, has a stanza that brought me back to when I was having severe panic attacks related to some pretty bad PTSD that I deal with. The stanza, quote, the universe spinning backwards, uncreating all that is seen and touched, clocks rewinding to zero, unquote. And I had never heard anyone else describe anxiety or a panic attack that way, which is, you know, my interpretation, of course, you may have been going for something different. But because what I experienced was the feeling of this is going to sound weird, the feeling of ice in my lungs, and I was hyperventilating to warm the freezing cold feeling in my chest. And I would basically go back in time in my mind incrementally back to the moment of my birth. I mean, from whatever age I was currently at, just year by year by year by year till I was a child, till I was birthed and then fixate on the time before when I didn't even exist, all the way back to the Big Bang. You know, Mm -hmm. I would basically just undo my own existence and undo existence itself. And it's like the terror would build until I got to that 
point zero where <laughs> I guess the world began or didn't exist. And I would just cycle through that over yeah. and over. So do you have any experience with panic attacks? And if so, if it's not too personal, can you uh, talk a little bit about it? Yes, I do. I had some panic attacks when I was younger. I was a, I was a strep carrier as a child, oh, yeah? which means that uh, some people may not know this, but you can get everyone's familiar with strep throat. You can actually get strep in other areas. I had strep in my kidneys. Ouch. And so that was very frightening. I was like, I think I was like 11 or 12 or something. And it was probably the first time that I felt that kind of anxiety. But then it was recently, I was a smoker for nine years. I used to smoke these little cigars that are like the size of cigarettes, but they're cigars. And I would smoke like a pack and a half a day uh-huh. for like nine years. And so I quit smoking, which was good. But when I quit smoking in the beginning, I literally would get these incredibly frightening panic attacks. And so one day specifically, I hadn't been smoking. I was feeling really on on edge. And so um, what I didn't know is that nicotine and caffeine interact with each other. Mm-hmm. So when you all of a sudden drop one and then consume a lot more caffeine, your body doesn't know how to process that at all. And so I'm sure there's all kinds of other stuff to that. But the point is, is that that was the most intense panic attack I've ever had. I really was about this close to calling 911. Mm-hmm. I literally was like, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I felt like I could feel my heart just going insane. I was sweating. I felt like I could feel my eyes, like if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And I called my grandpa who had also quit smoking and I was like, this is what's going on. And, you know, he's probably the most influential person in my life. So he was able to help. But that was a full on panic attack. I actually went to the doctor and talked to them afterwards. That's where I learned about the nicotine and caffeine thing. But that was a really intense panic attack. And it gave me a kind of insight to people who deal with that on a daily basis that I can't even imagine. And so that really, it really inspired that poem because on one hand, I can relate having had some panic attacks. But on the other hand, it's like kind of trying to empathize with the people that deal with this on a much more frequent scale, you know. Mm -hmm. But for me, when I experienced that kind of anxiety and panic, just dread, I do think of it similar to like what you were talking about. It's like to say time is running out is not accurate. It's not like when you're playing a video game and time is running out, you're about to lose. It's that like you're literally losing time and it's you're losing it faster than you can even do anything about it. And that then causes you to worry more, which then speeds up that loss of time. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like this, like a giant reactor just getting faster and faster and faster. And so you can't handle it anymore. Or the other way to think about it is like being pulled backwards towards a cliff. And then you're just now you're in free fall. Mm-hmm. And that's so frightening. And yet also at the same time, the free fall might be the only comforting thing because <laughs> now the dread at least is over. You've yeah. gone over the edge. Uh-huh. So all of that was in my head. But panic attacks are very intense and very real. And again, I, pro- I write about this because I come from an upbringing that kind of doesn't really take that seriously. You know, yeah. that would just be like, well, you just need to, you know, just pray about it. Mm. Don't worry. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> well, you kind of need a little bit more substance than that. You know, it's like, hey, I'm feeling anxious. Here's some great advice. Don't. are you kidding me that that's oh i had no idea i had the option (laughs) exactly oh well there we go (laughs) yeah well all around sir it's a great collection dislocated a collection of poetry by dylan webster listeners at home buy it read it love it distribute it 
share it, all that good stuff. But I heard you are uh, working on a novel. Yes, I am. It's actually since writing that, it's it's turned into accidentally working on two novels yeah. and another collection of poetry. The collection of poetry is nearly done, um, and I'm very proud of that. The novel is interesting. I read a novel called Tinkers, and that novel was really fascinating and kind of inspired the one that I'm trying to write now. But I wanted to write a story about a religious leader, like a pastor that leads his flock, and he himself is like actually pretty a pretty simple man just trying to lead this kind of church in kind of a simple sort of Christianity. But he starts to kind of like lose his mind. So I wanted to write about some of the congregation recognizing that he's having real mental health problems. And then part of the congregation viewing him as a visionary or a prophet. Interspersed throughout that, I wanted to have sections or chapters that are written from his perspective, but in a nonlinear like the whole novel would be in past tense, but his moments would be in present tense, very disconnected from the rest of the story. That's what I've been working on. It's very challenging, but it's fascinating. I mean, I can't stop thinking about the story, so I'm hoping mm. that'll turn into something. Awesome. I do have another novel that's started off as a short story, has become more of a novel, and is more straightforward horror. Okay. Well, which medium do you intend to uh, make the main focus of your writing, poetry or prose? Um, or do you know, <laughs> I would say that I, I don't know what my intentions are, but I will say that I write poetry the most and it comes the most naturally to me. I think, I think at the end of the day, I would probably call myself a poet first and I can't ever stop writing poetry. I do go long stretches without writing prose. Hmm. Gotcha. Well, I see you are published by Quill Keepers Press. Mm -hmm. How did you uh, hook up with them and what's the experience been like? Well, first of all, the experience has been absolutely incredible. Stephanie Lamb is the editor-in-chief over there, and the work that she does is just amazing. The cover to my book is actually designed by my wife, oh, um, okay. Esther Webster, who she's an artist, and she had illustrated that and got the whole thing together. And I presented it to Stephanie and told her, hey, you know, I, I kind of really like this. Is that something that we could even do? And Stephanie was absolutely like, well, send it over and let me see it. As soon as she saw it, she was like, oh, this is great. Yeah, absolutely. You can use this, you know, and just very, I guess what I'm trying to say, it's very, you know, lets the creative control be in the hands of the artist, yeah. which any artist wants, mm -hmm. you know? So I respect that tremendously. And she really backs up her authors, obviously me, but the other authors as well. I mean, if you follow her on Instagram or any of the other socials, you'll see that she's always promoting them, even if they were published a year ago. As in my case, this recording of this podcast is on the actual one-year anniversary of my book. Oh, wow. Okay. the Like, to the day? To the day. April 30th no of last year is when shit. my book came out. All right. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, But I think it's been great. I just found them unsubmittable. I had been submitting, and I believe, if I'm correct, the first publication was in the mental health anthology that came out in... 2021 i want to say mm -hmm. and i wrote i wrote a poem in there that actually references it actually references the chasm and nietzsche and all of that ah. it was published there at first and then she published like a couple stories and some more poems throughout the time and then and then it kind of just blossomed from there and and i was able to publish a full-length collection it's been really really wonderful to work with Quillkeepers press i recommend anybody to submit to them nice 
Well, how does the marketing for poetry differ, if at all, from someone trying to market a novel? And is there any advice you can give to aspiring poets with regard to marketing? Um, yeah, I do think it does differ a lot. Poetry is, you know, it's a beautiful thing, but it has this perception that it's difficult to grasp. So in my own personal experience, the best way to get good engagement is to be there in person reading your poetry to people. Mm. And so I tried, you know, I go to a lot of open mics. When there weren't open mics around me, I started an open mic myself. And uh. people started showing up, which has been incredible. And then honestly, the biggest thing I would say to any poet out there is that you would just be surprised how many people are willing to help if you call and ask. You just call them and ask, hey, I'd love to do a poetry reading. Is that something we could do? Mm -hmm. And you'd just be really shocked, at least in my experience. I've been very fortunate to find people who have been more than willing to help give a space or let me rent a space or anything. It just when you ask somebody, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times in my experience has been people who say, oh, yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. But that sounds great. Let's do it. And people show up. That's the other thing. I do think people out there want poetry. They love poetry when they experience it. I guess if I were to give an artistic response to that, <laughs> I would say that you should not just write poetry, go and do poetry. Gotcha. All right. Well, that was going to kind of be my next question. I've seen video of you on Instagram doing poetry readings. And, you know, I live in a big city, but I don't really get out much anymore. But what types of venues are you reading poetry in? And I mean, I know you said you started an open mic. Are there other spots? Is it a thriving community? I have been absolutely surprised and just happy to see how much of a community did already exist here in Phoenix. And when I say Phoenix, I mean the whole metro area mm -hmm. because it's really a couple cities all here in this metro area. But so first of all, to see the already existent community that was there, but also how much it's growing. I do think that we're growing, um, like I said, the arts community in general, but poetry is getting a lot more attention again. I get, like we said earlier, everything's cyclical. You know, I feel like the first time around when Slam came around, it got really big. Then it kind of quieted down. I feel like now it's coming up again. But people love poetry. People want poetry. And I think when they see it, when they see a person there, it's great. So, for example, the video you saw was me at the Foundry Hotel mm -hmm. in downtown Phoenix. It was amazing. They had a poetry reading and I was one of the invited guests. I was very happy to be there. But they do stuff like that all the time. And then in May, I'll be doing something at one of our local bookstores here. And it's like you do one thing, you connect with people who then connect you to this other event. And then they connect you to that event. And so just by getting out there and starting to do it is when you really find that. And there's been a lot of great stuff online too. Other poets, just reach out to other poets. Mm. The real ones will want to help you. Real artists, real poets will want to help other poets. Awesome. Well, when did you start writing seriously with the intent to publish and what was going on in your life at the time? Um, with the intent to publish, I have written for a long time. I've written poetry since I was about 11 or 12. It's been a dream to get published of mine, honestly, since I was probably 12 or 13. <laughs> I've wanted to be published. I wanted to have my books out there. I've wanted to do readings. I wanted to connect with people who have read my work and talk about it read their work. I've wanted that kind of interaction ever since I read about the lives of the poets that I first loved, like, you know, 
like Edgar Allan Poe, like W.B. Yeats, like John Keats, like all of them. And then as it went further from there, you know, Hart Green, T.S. Eliot, a bunch of the famous ones, and Sexton, obviously a huge influence in my writing. I've wanted that for a long time. Since I started really beginning to submit and start that process has pretty much been 2020. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really owe that to my wife, if I'm being honest. She's the one that was like, you know, you've been writing, you do this, you love it so much. You hate your job. Why aren't you trying to pursue this? You know, just mm-hmm. go out there and just do it. Just try it. You know, the worst they're going to say is no, we're not going to publish it. And then you, you're going to keep writing anyway. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she herself is also creative. She does like graphic novels and comic books. And she's also written some short stories that are really good. So, you know, she just was talking about the people that inspire her and how they tried and didn't get published for a long time, but then they finally did. And, you know, I just was like, you're absolutely right. So as she usually is. And um, I just started submitting. And I think Quill Keepers, it was either Quill Keepers or the Dilly Dunn Review were the first ones to accept my work. And as soon as something got accepted, it was a simultaneous moment where one, my dream was achieved. And two, I realized that it's just normal people writing stuff and submitting it to other normal people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not this huge, unattainable, heavenly glory type of thing. It's just do it. You write it, you send it out there. You know, someone's going to like it. Mm. Someone's going to read it and resonate with it. And other people won't. And that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, which writing influence radically altered your view of what could be accomplished with the written word? Ah, I really love the way you phrase that question. Because I would say, you know, just like a typical kid in school, you know, Edgar Allan Poe was probably what brought me into writing. Funny enough, the two people that changed my idea of like what writing can do uh-huh. were both Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, her husband, uh-huh. which I know uh-huh. is not a very, <laughs> that's <laughs> a somewhat taboo thing to say yeah. in the poetry community. It's usually you pick one side or the other. But <laughs> what I loved is reading Sylvia Plath's work before Ted Hughes, then while she was with Ted Hughes, then obviously her last incredible output, and then also reading how that changed Ted Hughes's writing. If you read his collection, Crow, I don't know if you ever have, but if you read that collection, I highly recommend it. It's unlike anything else that Ted Hughes wrote. And it's clearly dealing with grief. And to me, it was really interesting to show that these poets didn't find a form and then stick in that form and recreate and manufacture poetry, right? Mm -hmm. What they did was grow in their art, each of them, in different ways. And were both successful and achieved incredible things, you know. So they're both a huge influence. What I loved was how they were incredibly intelligent people and yet could also write very accessible poetry. Mm-hmm. I think that was breaking down something in my mind that had told me, like, you need to be really intelligent for people to take you seriously. And then reading, like, well, here's intelligent people writing in a way that is accessible. And that helps people more, you know, once that was broken down. I was absolutely like, okay, let's go. And then I found Anne Sexton and that just changed everything. Mm. Anne Sexton to me is one of the most, I think people should talk about her far more than they do. And she is already famous, but people should talk about Anne Sexton far more than they do. She was a poet who didn't get into it till late in her life. Well, you know, later in her life by all standards. (laughs) Um, And, and in the midst of, of mental crisis. And then yes, she did achieve fame, of course, but, what I really mean by people being inspired by her is that 
she also grew. I mean, you can read to Bedlam and Partway Back and you'll see, obviously, this is why she's famous. This is what got her huge. Everybody loves her. That's great. But read the awful rowing toward God and you'll see like how much of a different poet she is at that point. And she's doing things that are very daring for the world of poetry. You know, she's talking about stuff you don't talk about. And I don't just mean like, oh, she's referencing suicide. I mean, she's literally inverting all of these images that we're used to. She's in your face and yet poetic. And it's very much like, I don't know of a more punk rock poet than Anne Sexton. Hmm. <laughs> I have to check her out. I don't think I've ever read any of her stuff. Very, very good stuff. Well, what subject matter drives you to write your darkest work? And what subject matter drives you to write the most hopeful? Fatherhood drives me to write my most dark subject matter. And I would say that same idea of family, expanding it past just fatherhood, inspires me to write my most optimistic work. So I think, you know, my own experience with that has been troubled. So a lot of the expression, the expelling of those of those dark thoughts come from that, but then also the working through it. So not just getting stuck in let me expel or get rid of all of these dark things, but also I want to move past them. You know, I want to build something new, walk somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to move forward. And so expanding the idea outside of just fatherhood and into family and into more than just blood, that's where my mind starts to abstract farther and farther out. And that, that inspires pretty much a majority of my writing. And that's actually pretty much the usual trajectory of a poem. Mm -hmm. Is I, I start somewhere that's either upsetting me, irritating me, or confusing me. And then <laughs> move forward uh -huh. and try to do something with it. Okay. Well, is there anything that you avoid because you believe it stifles your creativity? Uh, for me personally, mm -hmm. um, yeah, alcohol. Absolutely. Okay. My new collection deals with that quite extensively. But there's a misconception for me. There was a misconception of like the troubled addict poet mm -hmm. who's visionary. and It's so um, romanticized. <laughs> it's so romanticized and so false. Yeah. In my experience, I either did not write or wrote the most horrible things. Um <laughs> when I was under that influence and when I'm not is when I can access the deepest things, but also when I can do something with them. Cause again, for me personally, I don't like something that just points a finger at something and says, look at that. I want a poem that says, look at that. Now pick it up. Now move it around. Now throw it and see what happens. Now expand it, turn it into a different shape. That's what I want a poem to do. Mm -hmm. That's what I want any art to do to me is to make me do something with it, you know, not just look at it and then move on. And so I can only access that part of myself when I avoid that. Okay. Well, what is the life of Dylan Webster like outside of writing? Very boring. I go to work. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I come back home and I write anytime I can before that. No, um, I'm very blessed to have, obviously I've mentioned my wife, mm -hmm. um, Esther, who's, who's an artist. So it's really great because, you know, it's great to have a relationship with someone else who's also involved in artistic endeavors because we can relate, but also we differ because, you know, she pursues it in a different way. And so 
the most amazing conversations come from that. Mm. And then also I have my son who's now five. And so we spend a lot of time with him and that's great and exciting and tiring. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Well, if there's one thing that you'd like people to take away from dislocated, what would that be? I guess I just would want people to, I just would want them to take away that it's okay to, to enter into those dark spaces, but to remember that in every dark space, there's a window in there. And eventually that window is going to let in some light. I intentionally placed the poem Ancestral towards the end of my collection because I wanted to make sure that there was something positive at the end. Ancestral is a very, a really personal, close poem to me about my son. Mm. And well, it's about my son and, and also kind of like the line of, of people as they've come through. But it's mainly about my son, seeing my son on this boat when we were in California and it was amazing. And I was talking about it because it's like, although you may feel dislocated, although all this stuff is going on and it's driving you to write about this stuff because you can't handle it and you know, you're facing the absurd every day, at the same time, how incredible is it that your ancestors are from Scotland, your wife's ancestors are all from Mexico, and now here's this little boy in California on a boat? <laughs> like, that's, what is life? That's mm. weird. That's cool, you know? Yeah. I intentionally wanted to make sure that poem was in there for that very reason. Awesome. Well, Dylan, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Yes, it's been great. Thank you so much for letting me talk for a really long time. Uh, That's all I ever want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Extrovert. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, <laughs> so as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Not really. Just, you know, pursue art, pursue the things that give you meaning, whatever they are. You know, for me, it's poetry and writing and there's meaning to be found, you know? So other than that, I don't really have anything to plug. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Dylan, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. Be sure to sign up for the mailing list by clicking the link in the description. And be sure to tune in next Tuesday, where I will have an amazing screenwriter, author, activist, and professor. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always... Thank you for listening. See you next time.